Welcome to another exciting episode of Scouting for Growth, the podcast that brings you the brightest minds and transformative ideas in the world of technology, innovation, and business. Today, we have a truly remarkable guest with us, Jonathan Green, an AI maven and the mastermind behind ChatGPT Profits. Jonathan Green's story is one of radical transformation resilience, and the relentless pursuit of excellence. From once being fired, doing a blizzard, to becoming a best-selling author with over 300 books under his belt, Jonathan has not only recovered, but soared to new heights. He operates from a serene island based in the South Pacific, where he orchestrates uh, AI-driven solutions from platforms like Midione, Claude, and Leonardo AI. With a mailing list of over 100,000 subscribers and a podcast boosting 250-plus episodes, Jonathan is an indisputable authority in leveraging AI to propel online business success. But it's not just about revenue, it is about building legacies. His initiatives, AI Freedom and Fractional AI Officer, are on mere training programs. They are transformative experiences designed to generate quick revenue for startups and optimize businesses. Jonathan's expertise extends to celebrity ghostwriting, where he guides entrepreneurs in crafting compelling narratives that not only sell, but turns them into industry heroes. For him, it's not just business. It is a revolution, and you have the chance to be part of it. In this episode, we will delve deep into the world of AI, as I said, and business acceleration. Jonathan will share insights on how to leverage ChatGPT for immediate revenue generation, the role of AI in building mailing lists, and how ChatGPT enables a remote highland lifestyle while running a thriving online business. So stay tuned as Jonathan Green takes us on a journey of transformation and innovation. And as always, be ready for some game-changing insights that can shape your approach to business. Jonathan, welcome to Scouting for Growth. Hi, Jonathan. Lovely to have you on Scouting for Growth. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So, Jonathan, I know you live in a beautiful island nowadays, but how did you get there? You know, where do you come from? You know, what got you to be able to enjoy the life you want to enjoy today? So one of the reasons to start your own business, there's a couple of reasons. One is for financial freedom. One is for decision-making freedom. And the third is for locational freedom, right? So it's like, I can spend my money how I want. Nobody can tell me what to do, or I can be wherever I want, right? Have control of these different areas of your life. So when I started out, a big part of it was, I want to live somewhere amazing. 
And a lot of my friends who started at the same time, we all kind of talked about that. And then they built offices and built teams and never moved anywhere. And so when I was like, I'm going to travel full time, they were like, that's so weird. And I was so surprised because I thought we'd made this agreement. But there are a lot of people who most people, if you say like, oh, if you had money and time, you never had to work again, what would you spend your time doing? Most people say travel, but only like a small percentage of Americans even have a passport, right? Only small people have ever left within a hundred miles of their hometown. And one of my crazy discoveries in my twenties, I lived in Japan for two years. And I would say to all my friends, listen, date my place for free. I know all the really affordable places to eat. I know where I can take you out. You can have the most craziest adventures. All you got to do is pay your own plane ticket. And nobody ever came for two years. All my friends who are like watching Japanese movies and interested in Japanese culture, people, there's a huge barrier between saying you want to go somewhere and actually going there. Because so few people travel, especially in America. Other countries have a stronger culture, like British people. Many of them will like spend a year before they go to university traveling for one year. We don't do that in America at all. Nobody in America, if you take a year off between high school and college, everyone thinks like you took the year off to go because something's wrong, right? Like think, oh, you must have spent a year in an asylum or had like a mental health issue, not you went to like actually grow as a person. So we really don't have that like cultural idea in America, unfortunately, that sees the value in travel. But you can always tell whenever I meet someone who's traveled, I can always tell because they have a stronger sense of self. They have a stronger sense of ego. They have more self-confidence. It comes from they've been in tough situations and survived it. So there's a like, lot of growth that comes from meeting people from different cultures and having different experiences. So that was really one of the reasons I built my business was to be able to live wherever I want. And where I wanted to live was on a tropical island. That's very cool. Very nice. You know, the other day I was looking at my uh, miles with the airlines I am traveling with. And uh, I'm nearing my 1 million miles with that airline, where, with this airline. And it looks like I've gone to 29 countries. I wouldn't say I go to multiple times to those countries often. And so I don't know how many countries have visited. I mean, I know I've visited 29 countries, but I don't know how many times I've gone to those countries because I didn't, didn't check that number. But as you said, traveling is part of my ethos as well, because that's a way you can actually be cultured and actually appreciate other people's culture differences but also even for work I had made a pact with myself that travel would also be part of the way I work with the organization I work with so it's fascinating to to hear that Jonathan but one things I have learned about you is you have cracked the code of using ChatGPT for business and to accelerate business as a, as a result and help others to build really profit-driven business using ChatGPT. So I'm really curious about how you got come about doing that. So walk us through the most crucial steps for someone wanting to leverage this AI tool for immediate revenue generation. Yeah, it starts with making the decision, going, I'm going to learn how to use these tools. I'm going to build into my workflow. Because we often say, oh, I don't have the time to learn the thing that will save me time. And that excuse is only going to last so long. We're kind of going to go through a couple of phases as you do with the new technology. First, there's the everyone's against it or the this is cheating, right? When we were kids, using a calculator in math class was cheating. Then it was using a graphing calculator was cheating. Then there was using a phone was cheating. And now those things have gone and become mandatory, right? So things start off as cheating. Eventually they're mandatory. And AI right now, everyone's like, oh, AI is cheating. And how long do you think until AI is mandatory, right? For homework and schoolwork to prove, oh, you have to learn how to use an AI. So it's not optional for much longer. So that's the first thing to understand. And that a lot of businesses are thinking, well, I'll just, once this technology sorts itself out, then I'll learn it in a year or two. And 
Unfortunately, most people who wait are going to go out of business because there's a study just came out last week or so that said people who learn to use ChatGPT are 40% more efficient. Yeah. If someone is racing and they're 40% faster than you, you have a real, that's a huge differential. Most races are won by like 1% or a fraction of a percent. 40%, that's such an edge. It's basically insurmountable. Yeah. You would consider it's not even worth my time because you can't recover that much. So the longer you wait to start adding this efficiency to your business, the more dangerous it is. So the first thing is make the mindset shift and to really go, you know what? I'm going to learn this tool. And you don't have to put in a lot of time. You don't have to spend 10 hours a day. If you spend 30 minutes a day or a weekend, a couple of little time on the weekend, all of these apps are now on, you can have it on your phone, you can have it on your tablet, you can have it on your laptop, you can play with them anywhere. That's the first step in the process is to make that decision. And the second step is to be strategic. A lot of people sit down with ChatGPT and have it write like a song for them or a poem for them or a recipe. And like, is that useful for you? <laughs> it's for most people, that's not a practical application, right? So I say, be very practical. Say, how can I, what are things that I do every day or that are a major part of my business that this tool can help with? And that's what you want to see is like, hey, can you help me reply to emails faster? Can you help me check my emails and choose which one to answer faster? Can you help me with spreadsheets I have to look at? Whatever you have to do every day that's repetitive or a little bit boring, those are the things, the first things you can start pushing to the AI. You know, sometimes I have a list of numbers and, or like a list of names where there's a number, the list is numbered. I need to get rid of the numbers. I have an AI do that because you would manually do it, right? And you do it for a hundred names. It's like 15 minutes of waste of time. So a lot of silly things that actually come up a lot, right? Or if you have a whole bunch of um, names in a spreadsheet and you need to split first name and last name into new columns, I don't know how to do that. I always forget the Excel formula. So I have ChatGPT do that for me. Nice. Because it's a time waster. So little things like that. Today, I was working on a sales page and I just had ChatGPT write all the copy for me. And why am I going to do, why would I do that myself? It's formulaic. It follows a template I've built. I would rather have it write the copy and then I review it. That's much faster than me writing it from scratch. And it allows me to be less mentally intensive because we only have so much time a day where we can have our brains operating at 100%. Right. That's why surgeons don't go back to back to back really hard surgeries. Right. They have space in between them because you can only do so much high intensity. Right. You can only be a red alert for so much time of the day. So the more tasks that I can push down to the my AI tools, the more I can accomplish every day. So that's really the first step is the mindset and going, okay, you know what? I can see the value in this and I'm going to invest in learning this because it's not optional. I know this has become a mandatory technology. I want to learn it before that happens. I want to learn it while it's still optional before I start getting into trouble. Yeah. You know, I I found it very useful. And uh, on Wednesday this week, I will be running a workshop for one of my uh, top US clients. And we are going to go through the whole Generative AI, ChatGPT, but Generative AI across the whole operating model of insurance. And I'm really excited about that because I spend a lot of time with marketing tools because you don't have to put clients data in it to actually play with them, to actually what uh, can come out of it. And as you said, very formulaic. So if you want to do a past model in marketing or an AIDA model in marketing, you can actually do that very quickly, 30 seconds with the uh, with the platforms which are there. But as you were speaking as well, Jonathan, I thought about a quote that you may like from Douglas Adam. Anything that is in the world when we are born is just natural part of the way the world works. Anything invented between when we are 15 and 35 is new and exciting. Anything invented after we are 35 is against the nature order of things and should be banned. And 
I think when you think about being able to change and maybe being a little bit more stubborn, sometimes I think about this quote. You wrote a book, ChatGPT Profit, and that has become a manual for entrepreneurs, Jonathan. What is the one concept from the book that people often misunderstand or overlook and why is it critical? So here's the first one. The most important lesson you can learn is that we're trained from television to repeat the mistakes of the past, which is garbage in, garbage out. The first lesson I learned was that if you give a computer bad data, you're going to get a bad result. Yeah. What we tend to do is say, ChatGPT, do this, and we give commands. When you structure it that way, the way the AI is trained is it will obey you, even if you're giving it a bad command. In fact, you're probably giving it a bad command because it's very unlikely you're giving it a good command because even I, most of the time, am giving it a bad command because you have a tiny mistake. If you switch to this model, which is chat GBT, here's what I want to do. What information do you need from me? So when I'm writing a sales page, I say, chat GBT, I want to rewrite these bullet points. What information do you need from me to write really good bullet points? And keep asking questions until you have enough information from my answers to write really good bullet points. That will give you 100 to 200 times better answer than just saying, write bullet points. Yeah. A great example of this is I was working with someone who was like, well, I don't know who my customer avatar is. And they were like, and I said, here's the prompt. And I went to ChatGPT. I said, ChatGPT, I want to figure out who my customer avatar is. Please ask me questions. And what it will do is ask me questions all at once. I say, no, ask me one question. Let me answer, then ask the next question. So it's less stressful. Because sometimes answering eight questions at once, it's I'm not going to answer as well. I'll just start giving shorter answers. So I worked through about 10 minutes of work and I got the best description of a customer avatar I've ever seen. So by switching to, here's what I want. What do you need from me? Here's what I want. What do you need from me? Whatever it is you're going to get massively better experience because of the way the AI is trained, which is a very boring rabbit hole to go down. It's basically never going to tell you you've given it bad data. <laughs> That's how people end up having ChatGPT lie to them or give it bad. And I've had it do it to me. It was, I got in a fight with ChatGPT earlier because it kept lying to me. And I'd run into a cul-de-sac, but I know enough because I'm a very advanced programmer to catch that. Most people don't, yeah. but I just knew I had to start a new conversation to get out of it. But if you don't start with a question, you're in a very, you're already in dangerous water. So it's better to say, this is what I want. What do you need from me? Because otherwise it will never ask you for more data unless you tell it to ask you for more data. This is cool. ChatGPT, this is what I want. Tell me what you need. I think this is one of the quotes we actually need to ingrain in our brains because I would say, you know, I've learned to do prompting and, you know, I've read some of the prompt book, um, you know, prompt engineering book and so, so on and so forth. And I think like you, with a little bit of programming, I'm, I'm okay, but I've never done what you just recommended right now, Jonathan, around asking it first what it needs from us. Um, but wh what's your view on, on, on the overall field and where it's going, you know, all these prompt engineering as a, as a new, as a new method, as a new role in the class of working science. What's your view? So I'm probably in the top 1% of prompt engineers in the world. I do fall into that category. One of the dangers is that a lot of prompt engineers are derivative of each other or they're following, they're not doing new thought. Okay. There's very few prompt engineers that are doing creative thought or thinking outside the box or doing really different things. Most prompt engineers watch someone else's prompt engineering training and then re replicate it, which is fine. I do the same thing. We all start learning that way, but they never think of something really creative. Like I said, starting with a question, right? That's a different way of thinking. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot of people that are becoming prompt engineers are actually very rigid in their structure. And the danger is that 
ChatGPT, Perplexity, they change a lot. They're reprogrammed. So when I first started using ChatGPT, one of my first questions when I was building a piece of software, I said, what programming languages do you know? And I no, what I said, what programming language do you recommend for this program? And a few months later, I was working on something. I said, hey, ChatGPT, what programming languages do you know? And the list changed. It was longer. And in fact, every time I check, it's a little bit longer. So it's learning new programming languages. And if you don't know that because you're programming the way ChatGPT worked six months ago, yeah. you have a huge problem. So prompt engineering is, it's a lot of data scientists type people getting into it, which is not what you want for a prompt. The best prompt engineer I know is a really, really weird philosopher. And he makes every other prompt engineer I know look like trash. It's such, there's such a wide gap between him and every other prompt engineer I've ever seen that it's not even close. And he's way past me. So he thinks about it in a completely new way. So if you have someone who's a mathematician or a computer scientist as a prompt engineer, you have a problem. Okay. Because they're not creative thinkers, which means they're only going to get a very, now they're going to write great prompts, but they're very limited. So you can do things with ChatGPT that nobody talks about that are really way beyond what other people are programming right now that are very advanced and most you'll miss it. So that's the danger of it. It's kind of that if you can, if we continue the cycle of, oh, I want to hire someone who I'm familiar with or who comes from another Silicon Valley company, you're going to end up with someone who just pivoted right from all the VR people who got fired last year and they went from VR people and other AI people. Right. So that's not who you want to hire. What you want to hire or want to work with is someone who's like really thinking very creatively, right? You would rather have someone who's a, not like a fiction writer or a poet than you want to have someone who's a mathematician because linear thinking is the biggest mistake you can make with AI. So it's whenever I, I say something really crazy or ask a crazy question, that's when I have a breakthrough with my prompt engineering process. And I've just found that it's amazing how many prompt engineers and other AI experts I run into who are very much still at the kindergarten level with their prompt engineering because they don't think or try new ideas. They're just like, well, this formula works, but it's changed. ChatGPT releases new features and new ways of doing it. And they don't tell anyone. Now, the big challenge is that they always give you the same blank page. You don't know that new features have been released because it's like a big old secret for some reason. And if you're not pushing against secrets all the time, trying to find out what it can do now, you know, it released Code Interpreter and they changed the name for it. It's got a new name now. I can't remember. I was playing with it yesterday. There's a lot of people who think that might be ChatGPT 4.5. And if you're trusting, you're only testing your prompts in ChatGPT 3.5 or 4, and when it switches to 4.5, your prompts are going to stop working. Mm -hmm. A lot of my mid-journey prompts stopped working between 5.0 and 5.1. And you have to reset everything. So you want a person who's very flexible both in how they think and how they react emotionally because it's frustrating when you put in a bunch of work and it goes yeah that doesn't work anymore we've changed everything yeah. that's not a very good feeling so you need to be able to adapt to that very much so i think that it's a very exciting time that there's a lot of ai consultant and there's a lot of opportunities in the market for these new positions but i think there's a tendency to fill them with the wrong people who are just pivoting from something else that they were doing and so they have the wrong mindset so when I look for an AI consultant or a prompt engineer, I'm really looking for someone who's very creative, who's thinking in a very different way and who you wouldn't consider to be a programmer or a mathematician because I don't need those. Those already exist. What you want is someone who approaches it in such a unique way that they don't just give you a 1% increase. I don't want a new prompt that makes you 1% better. I want a new prompt that makes you 200% better, 400% better. So... I'm always trying to be the control. So I have a couple of prompts I use 
that beat the best prompts out there. That's what I'm looking for. So there's some very expensive software I use for different social media channels for Twitter, LinkedIn, and they have built-in AIs. And my the prompts I use for my network always give a better response, always generate better content. And that's what I'm looking for. So I want it to be like very wide distance in anything you create. So that's really the approach you want to have. If your approach is looking for incremental growth, then you're going to get surpassed by the company or the programmer or the AI engineer, the prompt engineer who's looking for hockey stick growth. That's where we're going to see the leaps and bounds progressions over the next year is the people that don't know there's a limitation. And so they blow right past it because they didn't know they were supposed to get stopped by some limitation. Yeah. It's interesting what you just said though. Uh, And I, I didn't realize because... Actually, today I was um, actually, I'll tell you, I was crafting, you know, your bio. So I, was, I t- took a part of your bio and I wanted something to be crisper. So I put it into ChatGPT and said, you know, can you help me re- recraft this for Jonathan? And the first time around, I was not happy with it. And usually it comes, you know, first time around and it's really nice. And this time I had to do it two or three times and rewrite it even myself because I didn't like it. So that is probably proof that things are changing. The other point you are making, which for me is a little bit more transparent, I love using a platform called Leonardo AI because you have all those new models popping up all the time. And then that for me is much more transparent to show how fast actually those models are coming out to market. It's incredible, you know. Over the weekend, I popped up and there was a new model. And then you have new flavors of models coming up where you can actually even change your design. And so for me, that also linked back to what you, you said, don't stay still. Just be mindful that the technology is progressing faster than anybody can think about right now. You're a writer. And uh, you're helping entrepreneurs also write their books. And I think also other than entrepreneurs, normal peoples as well, who might not be entrepreneurs. Can you tell us what that entail to be a writer for others and also enabling people might be shy to write their first book and become authors as well? Yeah, so there's two different components. The big reason people don't want to write their book is because we're afraid of judgment. The big fear is that I'll write a book that tells my deepest, darkest secrets and my true feelings my heart of hearts, and then I'll be rejected. That's the worst thing that can happen to a person. It's what we fear in relationships, what we fear at work. It's why we're, we never want to show everything. So that if we get rejected, it's not as devastating. So there's this fear that a lot of people have, and it's legitimate. I felt the same way when I launched my book. I was like, what if people reject me? When I wrote my first book under my own name. I'd written so many books under other names and projects I didn't care about. Writing about something I was passionate about and cared about so much, it's more dangerous. It's riskier. So that's the first thing. That's what holds a lot of people back. And it's interesting. I meet so many people who say they're authors, and but they haven't started their book yet. You don't hear that in other professions. You don't hear that from, oh, I'm an actor. I haven't done any movies yet, <laughs> right? I'm a musician. I don't know how to learn a guitar yet. But you hear that a lot for writers, which is everyone believes that's very easy. And that's fine. Everyone has this dream. We kind of go through those phases, right? When you're in your teens, you want to be a rock star. In your 20s, you want to be a movie star. And after 30, you want to be an author. Those are the three phases that I've experienced. And Maybe now things have been replaced with like TikTok star, a content creator, influencer, but that's the kind of the flow is that as you get older, you change what you think is achievable. So that becomes your goal. When I'm working with a client, my job is to remove their bad ideas more than it is to give them good ideas. So most people, what they really have is a misunderstanding of what makes a good book. So they think a book has to be like a textbook and it's like, well, nobody likes textbooks. People hate those. And then the second thought is they think it has to be a biography. I was like, well, when's the last time you read a biography? 
I've read one in the last 10 years. I read the biography of Patton. It's 800 pages because I was like, well, they made a movie out of this and people talk about it all the time. I need to read this book and kind of figure out this story. So I've read one, but and I'm a professional writer. I meet very few people that read biographies of non-famous people. So yeah, maybe you'll read a, like one of a president or a prime minister or someone in a band, but you're not going to read one of someone who you've never heard of. It just doesn't happen. So you have to find the intersection of interesting and educational. That's the real secret. And that's where I begin. A lot of people think, oh, in my book, I have to show people how smart I am. And it's like, no, nobody likes smart people. The barrier is not here at I have to show them I'm smart. The barrier is here is I have to show not an idiot. Anything above idiot and you're golden because people will like you. And that's much more important. So the book is about 10% demonstrate that you know enough about your subject to not be considered a complete idiot. And then the rest of the book is being likable because that's what we really want to work with. The reason I started my own business is I wanted to work with people that I liked. I said, I don't want people that I don't like anymore. Because every one of us who has an employer, there's someone at the office when they go, oh, you have to work or go on a trip with this person. You're like, no, they're the worst. There's always someone you don't like, or even if you just don't like them a little bit, or you do, I'd never want to work with this person if I had freedom of choice. So that's one of the first reasons a lot of people quit their job, start their own business. So they don't have to work with people they don't like. So you want to become, when you're writing a book, it's 10% educational, 90% rapport. And then you have to tell stories that are intentional. Like, why are you telling me this story? Just because it's interesting, then it doesn't make sense in here. So it always has to illustrate a point. So that's the really the big picture of when I write a book. And then most of what I do is I'm a very good interviewer because I get bored very quickly. And so when I'm interviewing someone, they start getting bored and go, no, something else. <laughs> so I won't let them put anything in the book that's because I get bored easily. So I'm always looking to cut out the parts that are boring. Whenever I'm working on a project, that's a huge part. Or the other thing I watch out for is the things people will misinterpret. So sometimes people will put something in a book. I go, this will make everyone hate you. And they go, what do you mean? It means this. I go, that's not how people will read it, right? There's an amazing number of women who believe they have some degree of um, clairvoyance. Yeah. Like a really high percentage, like a shockingly high percentage. And someone I was working with was like, I'm just going to, she had one sentence in the book about like, oh, I can a little bit see the future. I was like, you can't do that. You cannot put that in a book unless the rest of the book is about how you can see the future, because that's not how men will read it. Um, women see it as a spectrum more than men do for, for who I've worked with. Men see it as it's either yes or no. Either you have a magical power or you don't. There's not a degree of it. It's like either you can fly or you can't. Not I can fly a little bit. That's how we see it. More of a black and white thing. Women tend to see these things in shades of gray. As far as I know, and Again, I can't see the world oh, yeah, that way. Yeah, but I was thinking probably it's a bit of emotional intelligence, but it's an interesting perspective, right? Um, well, right. So that, but the way she wrote it, people would read it as I can see the future. And I said, listen, people are going to read the book and they're only going to remember one sentence. That will be the sentence they remember. And I said, listen, that's a very dangerous unless you want to spend the rest of your life answering questions about this ability. And it's, not what she was like, the book's not about this topic. So that's my job is to notice that is that people will jump on the sentence because it's happened to me where people pick one sentence from one of my books, they take it out of context. It becomes their favorite sentence to talk about. So when you're building out a book, those are kind of things that I really help people with. And then the final thing is that most people have no ability to detect if they're being interesting or boring. So people will come to me and they'll say, Jonathan, I'm not sure if this is interesting. And I always know the more they defer, the more 
amazing the story will be. I had someone who said, listen, I know this is really boring. It's probably not interesting, but I just wanted to get your opinion because you've said all these things. I was a spy for 20 years. And then my wife was a spot. And then my wife was a spy in the Russian ballet for 20 years. Is that interesting? And I was like, do you not know what interesting means? Like, that's what people say to me. Or another person came to me and they said, listen, I don't know if this is interesting, but one time I was driving a tanker truck and the truck flipped over and it's going sideways down the truck and it, when it's sparking and I'm like 50 meters from hitting a gas station, which will explode and kill me and a hundred people. Is that interesting? And I was like, have you ever seen a movie? Every, that's in every exciting movie but people the more the exciting the thing is and then third person this is the third story was they go was this i think this is probably too boring people won't be interested but i was in a plane um with a bunch of people who were supposed to do skydiving and the plane engine died when we're too low we couldn't jump out of the plane because the parachutes wouldn't work and we the plane was coming down because the engine went out is that interesting and i was like oh my gosh i don't Yes. Very interesting. What happened? I know the, I know you lived because you're telling me the story, but I don't expect you to live in the story. So people have this issue. And then when people are really boring, it's the other thing. I had one client who wrote a 30 page section of his book, just about the mixer in his kitchen. Mixed which is, you know, the zoom, zoom, zoom that just used to for baking and 30 pages. Incredible. What are you doing? And my editor who was working on that book, she got so mad at me about that. I was like, cause I made her work on that part. Cause I, I'm like, this should be one sentence. My kitchen has a mixer. It's red. That should be as much as you say, but he was waxing poetic for 30 pages. And that's the other thing people will do is they really struggle with those things. So that's part of my process. And then the final thing is there's a magic moment when I find the through line of a book, what's going to make this, what's going to be the real narrative structure. So I was working with a client who just so financially successful and that makes you unlikable. It's very hard to like rich people yeah. because it, even if they have a rags to riches story, like, yeah, you grew up poor, but now you're so rich. I can't relate to you. And then he had this really amazing story that I, it took a lot of interviews to get to it. Normally it takes me two interviews to write the whole book, but we got to this story and there was this moment where he tells it. I, was like, I said, this is the book. And he goes, what? I go, that story is going to change everything. I said, that story is going to make everyone who reads this book fall in love with you. And that's my job. And he's a great marketer and a great copywriter, but sometimes it's hard to see that about yourself. The why do people like you, right? And you have to show that you've overcome struggle. It's why those reality shows that are contests are so good because you watch a singing show or a talent show and it's 12 underdogs. There's no one who's as a success story, right? They're all the hero. They're all the rags to riches. They've really figured that out, which is what you want to create in your book. So that's really a lot of my process when I'm writing a book for a client and creating their story. That's interesting because you actually have to go into your true self, right? Into your soul and be honest and authentic in the way you're actually putting your story out there, I guess. You have mentioned and when we talked last that shifting from selling to giving away books increased revenue seven times in one year. So what strategic shift enabled you to achieve this actually, Jonathan, how can businesses in more traditional sector implement those strategies? Because, you know, giving often we say, you know, the, um, the principle, the sixth principle of influence, right. From, Cialdini. Uh, it's about the first one is gifting. And so I wonder when I read this, how can we empower others to really understand that power? So for a long time, I've always thought of other authors as my enemies. I said, if someone's reading someone else's book, they're not reading my book. 
And that was my mindset for so long. It's a very aggressive mindset and it's all about competitiveness. When you switch from competition to collaboration, we start thinking about forming alliances. Most successful ventures, companies, countries, alliances is a huge part of it, right? Every country is part of different alliances and different agreements and different trade agreements and different defensive packs and all these different structures for some form of alliance. So I started thinking about, I'm spending so much on advertising because that's how these bookstores make you pay to run ads to sell your book. And then they take a huge commission. So I was at breakeven. I was like, my book is $7.99, but I'm making zero from each sale because I'm spending all of the royalties on running ads. So I'm giving away the book anyways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it's risky, right? When you're running a lot of ads at breakeven, it's a very risky place to be. So I started thinking about, you know, I read every book in the genres I like. I read science fiction, so I'll read, I don't read only one author, right? If that author has no new book, as soon as I finish one series, I jump to the next. And every time I've been to someone's house who has like dating books, they have all of them. They don't just have one relationship book. They have men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Think like a man, I act like a man, think like a woman. They have all of them. So people actually read a lot of different books on a subject. People have business books will have a whole bunch of different ones. So I started thinking, you know what? What if I just reach out to other authors who are my competition? I say, hey, what if we all collaborate and I'll share each other's book for one or two days a year and we just exchange? And what happens is you don't lose your super fans. People that love me are not going to leave. They're not going to jump ship. What you lose are the people who are just about to jump ship, right? The people who are like, I'm thinking about breaking up with Jonathan's mailing list. I'm thinking about breaking up because they're, they're like, I like him, but I'm getting a little bit bored of him, right? It's all those people. We've all been in a relationship where we think about it a little bit before we finally say it. We go, sometimes we wait years, sometimes we wait a couple of weeks or just a couple of days to break up with someone, but we're thinking about it. So all of those people who are my bottom 10%, they're the 10% that are just about to leave me anyways, they will switch to someone else, but they'll switch to someone they fall in love with. So if you and I were to exchange, we each had 100 followers and I give you my 10 worst followers, you don't receive 10 bad followers. You receive 10 really good followers because they're going to switch to you. They've been an active decision. Go, oh my gosh, I want to, this is way better place for me to be. Mm -hmm. So what you, it's interesting is we both win. And then I receive your 10 worst followers and they become super fans of mine. So when I run these events, whether it's for five or 10 authors, everyone gets a larger audience everyone generates more revenue and everyone wins. There's not really, um, I very rarely does an author have a negative experience. It does happen, but usually in my experience, it's only authors who are kind of cutting a lot of corners with their books. So if your book's not good, you're going to have a problem. It's only that. That's the only person. I, I only know of one person and it's because of the quality of their book. So as long as you wrote the book yourself, let's just say, then you're going to have a great experience. And what happens is you uh, you attract the right type of people and the big thing we fear with giving something away is that it's just a freebie seeker. But if they already bought my book and then I give them yours, we know they buy books. Yeah, They just happen to not buy yours. So you're, they've already crossed that threshold and it kind of brings you a really powerful audience. So that's the first part. That's kind of my mindset is I'm always looking for cooperation. I run a lot of cooperative events. Now I do like three or four a year. I have one that's going on tomorrow, sorry, for the next two days. And sometimes I do another type of event where we'll all put our books on sale. Then we'll all send, recommend each other's books on Amazon just because like especially on a prime day or like a Black Friday day, it's a great day to push your book up the charts because there's a lot of other secondary people will see it. Yeah. So I run those types of events just to organize other people together. Now, the way this can work for businesses is you start to think, who are companies 
that my customers also spend time with that are not my direct competition. So if you're a smaller business and you're in location, you might be in a strip mall, right? Where there's five or six businesses next to each other. People come in, they park, they go to one business and then the next. What if you and all those businesses did something collaborative? Like you ran a block party together or you guys all run a sale at the same time or you, because they're always fighting over, hey, don't park here if you're going to that store. Instead of all of that mindset, you start thinking about how can we all cooperate so that all the customers going there want to come here too. That we start to recommend each other to each other. And whether that's through referral fees or through collaborative ventures, or you create like a coupon book that has just coupons from each other, any of those things you can start to do when you just start thinking, how can I operate in a collaborative mindset? So you don't have to operate with direct competitors, but with anyone that your customers kind of intersect with. So this is why it makes sense if you're a car company to have collaborative ventures with car insurance companies, right? Everyone has a car needs car insurance. That makes sense. This is why it makes sense if you're a regional place. It's like, oh, we're a restaurant. Well, you can cooperate with a lot of other restaurants because people usually rotate the restaurants. And you can also collaborate with a dentist in the area, a doctor in there. There's a lot of options. So once you switch to this mindset of I, so many things become possible. And a lot of it is people don't really understand how businesses work. I'll give you an example, a specific one for me. If you're an entrepreneur and you want to collaborate, the first place you can collaborate with is the UPS store. Every UPS store is a franchise. They don't have any non-franchises. They're one of the few businesses where there's no company stores. It's 100% franchises. So every one of those stores is trying to make a profit, right? And there's a lot of them. There's a lot of different types of mailboxes. So if you, you're allowed to leave business cards or flyers in there, most of them will just let you. But if you say, hey, listen, every time you send me a customer, I'm going to send you a referral fee. Well, now you've opened up another revenue stream for them. Mm -hmm. And if the owner of the store says no, you can just ask the manager, say, hey, listen, every time I get a referral fee, I'll just give it to you instead of the owner. Is that cool? Of course, they're going to say yes. And this is just beginning to think of a little bit of collaboration. And you're not stealing customers because you're not a postal business, right? I'm not a post office box business. I don't wrap boxes, so I'm not competing but I'm offering a revenue stream and someone will be like, okay, I want that money. Maybe you only can afford to give $100 per referral, but to most workers, an extra $100 a week is a huge, that's a financial difference. That's a life-changing difference, right? That's something that normally takes them seven hours of work to make. Yeah, That's an extra day's salary. Who wouldn't love to get that, right? That's a big raise. So once you, that's a 20% raise for a lot of people. And so you can start to think of, I can cooperate with my other businesses or I can cooperate with their staff in ways that, again, are not about stealing their customers because that's not the mindset at all, but instead go, you know what, I'm going to collaborate with them. And in fact, you're going to be the one I recommend. And once you start to form these alliances, now it's the people outside the alliance that struggle. So this is one of the ways you can start to get a little bit stronger without spending any money. And again, it's like there's all these ways to advertise that don't require money, that just require friendship. So that's really the mindset that can help, especially smaller businesses or starting businesses. Bigger businesses can do it as well. They're just move a little bit slower because there's so many people on the way to a decision maker. But it's very, for an agile, smaller business, a one person operation, or you have just five or 10 employees, you can implement this in one day and you'll start to notice a change in your business. Incredible. I mean, it's incredible because those are, um, you know, tips, tactics, which I believe in, you know, collaboration is critical in the world I'm in, which involves startups and investors and corporates. And 
that is the only way you can build ecosystem, you know, fruitful ecosystem and start learning much faster than others around how you start making a difference in the world we are in, partly when we have what we call a protection gap of $1.8 trillion, um, where some people cannot even afford, um, you know, saving investment and stuff like that. Jonathan, you offer two AI training programs. One is called AI Freedom, I think, for entrepreneurs, and the other one, Fractional AIO for business. Can you explain what those are and how entrepreneurs can and businesses can take advantage of those? Sure. The first one is for I have a business. I want to learn to implement AI to grow my business. So that's what AI freedom is. It's I want to learn to increase the efficiency of my business. I want to cut my business's overhead. I want to really implement for myself. And it's really focused on that core concept of improving the quality of your business and being more efficient, basically spending less time and making more money. Mm -hmm. The second program, Fractional AIO, is this opportunity that there's a new position that's kind of being invented right now called the Chief Artificial Intelligence Officer. And a lot of companies don't need a full-time CAIO. What they need is a fractional AIO, which is someone who works one day a week or comes in once a month, builds all of their systems, designs the SOPs, designs the processes. Because once a process is designed, someone else can invent it over and over again. So one of the biggest things I hear is like, well, just tell me which AI to use. There's so many AI tools. There's so many AI softwares. Every single day, there's about 20 to 30 AI softwares that launch and announce themselves through press release. There's another 50 to 100 that launch via discount sites. They go, hey, we're here. We're doing a lifetime deal. And you go, well, I don't know which one to grab. And it can become very expensive. And there's even companies doing like IPOs and SPACs to launch and saying they're AI companies. And then everyone finds out they don't have any AI tech and 99% of the valuation disappears in one day. It's happened twice this year with a SPAC. So for a company who's like thinking about bringing AI, it's really, really scary because you cannot tell without a huge amount of research if companies really are doing it or not. Mm -hmm. I can tell you that I run into fake AI companies every couple of days. So I was testing a bunch of website builders or AI website builders. And one of the ones I run into was emailing me a bunch. They don't use an AI. They're faking it. They're using a really basic heuristic model, which is you check boxes, but never asks you a question to fill in the blank question. So it just designs a website based on a template and then you fill in the boxes and then it puts that into the website. There's no AI element. Mm -hmm. That's a huge problem. That's very dangerous for your customer. It's very dangerous for anyone who is recommending. It took me a while to figure out because I was playing with it and I was going, there's something wrong here. And this is what I do full time. So it took me about halfway through building a website. I was like, why is this asking me to click on all these boxes? Because the good website builder just asked me two questions and builds the website. That's an AI. Mm -hmm. So it's very much a company's just want to know, hey, which one should I use? Which one should I avoid? What don't, you know, don't give me three choices. Just because it's like, that's not what you want to hear. It's like, no, just tell me which car to buy and then I'll buy it. I don't want to have a long, I don't want to spend the, do the research myself. I just want you to tell me. So there's a huge opening for that, right? Which is, well, which tool do I use in which situation? How do I know when to use this? Like, here's a simple example, Perplexity AI, ChatGPT, Claude, they all look the same. They all got together and they said, let's just have no onboarding process and we'll have, let's have our websites all look the same. So it's really hard to know what one can do and one can't. But the greatest weakness of ChatGPT is it's bad at research and it will lie to you if it doesn't have the data. Perplexity is the opposite. Perplexity is driven to answer that problem. 
It always shows its sources first. You can choose which type of sources it's allowed to pull from and it always gives you links to every source right mm -hmm. in the answer. Mm -hmm. It's an amazing research tool. So I, they look the same and yet they're yin and yang. One solves problem A and one solves problem B. But you wouldn't know that because they kind of got together and they've all agreed these the good AIs always have the worst onboarding. It's the craziest idea to go, hey, what type of onboarding experience? What about blank page? I want someone to feel like they've walked into an airplane where all the buttons are white and you don't know where the buttons are hidden. Why would you want to give anyone that experience? But ChatGPT is getting away with it, so they're all copying it. Yeah. There's a huge opportunity in that space. It's why my market exists. They forced the creation of a secondary market, a training market. Yeah. It's just like any market where there's no instruction manuals, instruction manual cre creators will appear. That's kind of the role that prompt engineers feel. So for an AIO, for companies that need, and every company big or small needs that because if you're using software from 2022, you have a problem. You're using software. So really, there's a couple of companies that I used to use that I think are going to go out of business in the next year or two. They're in big trouble because OpenAI did a couple of things to change the market. The first thing is they released a tool that's very powerful. The second thing they did is they make it $20 a month for unlimited usage. Exactly. All of these other companies used to charge you per AI generated word or per task, all of these other things. ChatGPT put a major downward push on what a lot of companies are allowed to charge. Right? Democratizing it. Yeah. So now there are so many products that have pushed their price down and a lot of people haven't noticed. So they're still paying last year's prices. Like, oh, I'm paying $150 a month. Like, yeah, but now that company's $7 a month. It's important to check those and go to the website. Yes, people, it is super important to always do your audit because it's critical. So there are a lot of software tools that change and update all the time. And if you don't keep up with that, you might miss it. A tool that happened, something happened with my team recently is we've noticed that the software to cut up a longer video and generate social media clips has become ubiquitous. It's now been added into the software I used to record my podcast, the software I used to edit my podcast. So we had our own specialized software doing it. Yeah. So we had this tool that six months ago made sense. And now it's on my team. I was like, does it make sense to still use this tool if everyone else is adding this feature? So what was once software became a feature. The same thing happened. There's software that when you're using a um, doing live streaming video will automatically point your eyes at the camera, even if you look away. There's yeah. a, There used to be an, a couple of aftermarket tools that do this. And now it's getting added to a bunch of the software that I have as a feature. So there's this thing happening where what is once a software is now becoming a feature of someone else's software. They're all kind of merging. Yes, absolutely. And so all of these different mergings mean you have to kind of check in on the tools that you're using every three months because the speed at which technology is changing is very quickly. Every single day, something I use as part of my company's workflow has an update. Seven days a week, 365 days a year, there's something updates every day. And a lucky day is the day where only one company pushes an update. So rare. <laughs> and how can you keep up with all that? That's what you have. And that's why this new role is filling in, whose job is to just know what software is out there, pay attention to updates, and think about what can we do to increase efficiency at our company? What we could do to press down on what we're spending? How can we lower our costs? That's why there's a huge opportunity. That's why I built that program, Fractional AIO, because... That's for people that want to service companies because instead of saying, oh, I'm going to start from zero and use um, AI to grow a company, you can say, oh, I'm going to take this company, sprinkle a little magic AI fairy dust on it and double their income and half their costs mm -hmm. because they already have something to work on. It's a lot easier to multiply by a company that already exists.
It's so true. there's a huge opportunity right now because every company needs to be using AI and every company that's not using AI is in a lot of trouble even if they don't realize it yet. Yeah, I absolutely agree, uh, Jonathan. AI is everywhere. It's ubiquitous. I mean, it's democratized, so it's easy to use and it's cheap to use t- today at the business level. Uh, people like you and I, who, I mean, for me, I'm not technical. You have much more of a programming uh, education, but I understand how to use those tools and now I understand why it's changing the world we are in as well today. But one question I have for you going toward the end of my interview, uh, Jonathan, is how do you approach ethical consideration? You know, we've talked a lot about artificial intelligence, chat GPT, machine learning. How do we deal with the ethical consideration we are seeing every day uh, with regards to the platforms we are seeing out there? Yeah. So the definition of stealing is going to change. What hasn't, what's changing right now is a lot of social norms. We're deciding what's rude and not rude. I'll give you an example is that a lot of people use these Fathom note takers now, right? And it makes sense when you're recording your own podcast, you have it in there, it's helping with the process. But some people will come to a group meeting and they bring their own note taker. I've been in meetings where eight people each bring their own note taker. So now you have 16 in the room. And as you know, with any software, you pay for the number of attendees. So if someone, if you have 50 people and they each bring 50 note takers, you can't have a 51st person, even if you're paying for a hundred person room. Mm-hmm. We haven't decided what's rude and not rude with this tool, right? But it will be figured out in the next year. We'll decide, you know what? Because cap like we we have all decided that capital letters is shouting. When you type and use all capital letters, we decided as a society that's shouting. But we didn't decide that lowercase writer letters is whispering. Yeah. We don't have a text whispering. We only have a text shouting. We haven't made that decision. So we're deciding and figuring out what's okay and not okay. Now. There are certain people whose goal is to put the genie back in the bottle, right? Like there's an interesting story right now. George R. R. Martin is suing ChatGPT because someone used ChatGPT to write his two unfinished novels. <laughs> now he hasn't written a novel in 12 years, right? When they made the final two seasons of the TV show, they had to make they had to make it up because yeah. he didn't provide. And so my thought is, you know what? You've had 12 years. It's hard to have sympathy for someone who's just been lazy. Like, what else can you say? You've had 12 years to finish your series. You haven't taken any action. And now you're mad that someone else did what you couldn't do. So it's really hard to have sympathy for someone who got so wealthy that they lost the hunger, right? He never needs to work again. He made so much money from those movies and everything else. But that's just part of it. And that's part of the game. Because guess what? ChatGPT knows who I am. If you say ChatGPT, write in the style of Jonathan Green, it will write like me. It's read all of my books. So I'm not just someone who theoretically has an opinion. It's has my personality in there. Yeah. And I can either rage against that and say, hey, how dare you copy my writing? So how dare you copy my writing? I can say, oh, no, I created a very special prompt that activates that so I can use me to edit my own books. I see it as an asset. So there's these two ways you can kind of deal with it as you can fight against it. You will lose. Just like all the musicians fought against Napster and music sharing 30 years ago, they lost. They did. You cannot reverse the technology. The bands who succeeded were the ones who go, how can we adapt this? There were certain musicians who actually would release tons of their music under the wrong name onto file sharing sites. So every time you download a song, you think it's YouTube, but then it's this other person who put out a song in their name so that more people would experience their music through that. That's actually brilliant. That was such a good idea. So the people are thinking, how can I use these tools that people are using to steal music to get people to steal my music so they know who I am? Mm-hmm. 
So you can either be someone who's fighting against the machine, you will always lose. You cannot put AI art generators, you cannot put a limit on them and how they create. It's just not going to happen. Instead, we have to think of is how can I make this work? Like the Writers Guild of America, they just had this big um, strike for like six months. And then they finally agreed to all this stuff like, oh, no one's allowed to use AI without our permission. And it's like, just wait. Just wait till they realize how many of them are not going to have jobs in six months because they didn't. The contract is not as good as they think it is. They should have had an AI read that contract before they signed it. That's the one thing I'll say is that you can keep saying, like the only way you can stop someone from using AI is making them promise. And it's like really what they've said is, hey, billion dollar company, pinky swear me, you're not going to use AI. They'll go, okay, we promise we're not going to use AI because we would never fire you. We would never. And when you think about how much money you could save, right? It's like, of course they're going to do it. Like, guess what? Because you can't figure it out. Of course it's going to happen. It's such a silly thing to do. But that's really the approach you have. You have a lot of people who are like, oh, it's so unethical, this and that. It's like, we haven't decided AI ethics, right? We're figuring that out. But the people who are really busy trying to hit undo are the ones who are going to suffer the most. The people who think, oh, this is not here to stay. Maybe if I file a lawsuit or complain or sue someone else for this and that, it doesn't matter. Here's the biggest thing you need to understand. ChatGPT is irrelevant. Napster is not still around. Nobody uses Napster to share music, right? Correct. What's happened, once people know it's possible, it's possible. There's open source AI. And every single day, a new open source AI comes out. I follow that. Which means you cannot, there are free community-built AIs that are, they've already beaten ChatGB 3.5. Everyone said that was impossible. It turned out they did it in less than two weeks. So that's already over. So the version of ChatGPT that was so hot six months ago, that's been beaten by a free open source tools like version. And there's a new open source AI that comes out every day, every single day, at least one comes out. It comes across my feed. I have to watch it and see how it's built and see what it can do. So the game has changed. It's not as though you can sue one company because they have the exclusive technology. Chat, if OpenAI, the reason OpenAI, the people who work there are often saying, oh, we need to help you create the laws because we're really worried about ethical considerations. They're worried about the comp competition. They want, to pass, they want to pass a bunch of laws that say, oh no, only AIs made by large companies are ethical. That's what they're really doing. That's what they're playing that game. That's why every time you see someone talking about what if the AI turns sentient, then you look at where that person works and you go, okay, I know what they're doing here. Like it's a very obvious motivation. They're not even subtle about it. Yeah. So most people that talk about ethical concerns are either very foolish and they're going to be gone soon. Their business will be gone or they're playing a little bit of a game because they're actually just trying to manipulate laws or perception to give themselves an advantage. Like, oh, other AI is bad, but my AI is good because it has limitations on it. So you can, there's nothing you can do about the ethics of AI. It's out there. You cannot hit undo. You can't reverse it. So you have to, have to think, how can I adapt to it? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, the AI genie is out of the box, 100%. The you know, in some industries which are regulated, like finance, we we still need to be careful as to how we use some of those tools on customer and how we do profiling. But you know, at the end of the day, we should have a human in the loop. That's what you are saying. You know, we are using those tools to improve efficiency, to reduce the time it takes us to do tasks. But we still are reading every word that comes out of it, and we have a choice to make. Absolutely, it's an accelerant, not a replacement, and it's not even close to replacement. So. 
as much as I can use AI generator to make art, a graphic designer will always be able to make something 10 times better. As much as you can use AI to write a sales letter, a copywriter will be able to take it so much further. So all it does is take what you're good at and make you better and what you're bad at and make you okay. So your expertise still really matters and it's going to for a really long time. So Jonathan, if I were, you know, if people listening to this discussion wanted to reach out and find you, where should they go? You can go to my website, servenomaster.com. And if you just search for serve no master, every result is me. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Jonathan, for this in-depth discussion. Uh, I very much enjoy what we talked about. And uh, now you make me think that I need to investigate this book. So I'm sure I would be in touch sometime soon. Thank you, Jonathan. <laughs> thank you for having me. Thank you. If you like this podcast, subscribe now, share with your friends, and if you enjoyed it, please give it a five-star review. Also, if you want to cover any specific subject with me, contact me on Instagram under Sabine VDL Officials or LinkedIn under Sabine Van der Linden. Thank you.